Welcome to Deshi, the Bloodproof Entrepreneur Podcast, Episode 13. If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chi Odogu, and welcome to another episode of Odeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode is very exciting to me. In fact, extremely exciting. I know you guys are going to love it as much as I did. I'm talking to Mira Meta. Mira is the CEO and co-founder of Tomato Joss. Mira and her co-founder are currently building what is going to turn out to be one of the biggest agriculture projects based out of Kefi, Nigeria. Her company is currently crowdfunding $50,000 on Kickstarter in order to purchase equipment for their new tomato paste manufacturing facility in Kefi, Nigeria. Now, I'd love to tell you a lot more about this project, but Mira and I spoke at length and in great detail about the strategy and the tactics she's using to build her business. So it wouldn't do you guys justice for me to tell you and spoil all the surprises that you're going to hear in the episode. This is the first part of a two-part series. And if you like to consume your content as a puzzle, you can listen to this episode first and then sub- the subsequent episode, or you can start from the part two and then listen to this one. Each segment is broken down to give you some tactical and strategic advice as to how to run a successful Kickstarter campaign and how to think about starting your own venture in an emerging market. As of this recording, there are currently four days left to the end of Mira's Kickstarter campaign, so I'd love to encourage everyone that's listening to the show to please, once you're done listening to the show, go to the kickstarter.com website and search for Tomato Joss, that's T-O-M-A-T-O-J-O-S, and please contribute to Mira's campaign and endeavor. Without further ado, here's Mira, and thank you for listening. Cheers. Hi, good morning, guys. Welcome to the show. I have a very special interview today. I'm talking to Mira Meta. She's the co-founder of Tomato Joss. It's a startup based out of um, Kefi, Nigeria, that is crowdfunding $50,000 to create a factory to make tomato paste in northern Nigeria. Mira and her co-founder recognize an opportunity, and they are now seizing that opportunity by raising some money to create their dream and their business in Nigeria. Mira started her professional career in BlackRock as an analyst. She then spent four years working with the Clinton Health Access Initiative in Nigeria, discussing and helping with HIV issues. Her co-founder is Shane Kernan. He couldn't be with us today, but he also has three years of experience in finance, and he also worked with um, the Clinton Health Access Initiative in Africa and in Europe. So Mira is here to talk to us about... Um, her background, and her new business, Tomato Joss, and what they're trying to accomplish with that project. Mira, welcome to the show. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Thanks, Chi, for having me. I'm really glad to be on the show today. Um, As you said, my background is not in farming, uh, but I am actually uh, endeavoring to start an agribusiness in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Um, I went, uh, I majored in Brown, at Brown University in community health. So that was sort of like a combination of sociology, biology, and epidemiology. Okay. Um, 
very clearly was a natural link to BlackRock. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so how did that come about? <laughs> so that actually came about because in, in school, in college, um, I was a, I was a coxswain on the rowing team. Okay. Um, so that's like the person who sits in the back of the boat and steers the boat and sort of yells at all the rowers. Okay. Um, so I've, I've always had a very uh, strong, I guess, leadership streak or a bossy streak. I don't know what you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought at the time when I was a senior in college that I was going to be on the national team. Uh, and they, you know, lived and trained out of Princeton University okay. in New Jersey. So I got this great opportunity to work at BlackRock in Princeton, New Jersey. I said, great, I'm going to make all this money. I'm going to be on the Olympic rowing team. You know, life is going to be awesome. Uh, didn't make the Olympic team and then wound up with this job at BlackRock that I said, well, I guess I should, you know, just take this and see what happens. Um, so it sort of was an accident that I ended up at BlackRock. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. I didn't really understand what mutual funds were and why I was trying to sell them. <laughs> but uh, I, I took, you know, that opportunity just to learn as much as I could about the industry, to mm-hmm. learn from very smart people I was working with, um, and ended up being there for two years. Wow. <laughs> and so what led you out of BlackRock after your two years? It's a good question. So we, um, we had a very strong bond in our analyst class, mm-hmm. uh, I think partially because we were sort of stuck in New Jersey and most people who worked in finance were working in New York, yeah. big city. Um, but we had some friends of ours who were also in our analyst class in London. One of them was British Kenyan. And he, for his 25th birthday party, had 25 of his closest friends fly down to Kenya um, and have a you know huge week-long party basically on his beach house off you know the coast somewhere down south of Mombasa. Okay. That was my first time in Africa. I had a great time. We went on safari. We went deep sea fishing. We went to the local club in the local town. You know, we did everything you could possibly imagine. And one of the things that we did was go to this orphanage um, because his girlfriend at the time had done a gap year in Uganda. And she said, you know, I really want to go and, you know, do something voluntary, something, you know, to make a difference. So we went down, we had black rock pens. We had about 200 pens. We're giving out these pens to these orphans who've been orphaned by HIV And something just clicked inside of me. I was like, this is crazy. You know, I make more money than my mom. I'm 23 years old. I majored in community health. These kids all, you know, are orphaned because of HIV. I could probably be doing something more than giving them pens. I actually have a skill set that, you know, I could be using to make a difference. Um, And so that, that really got me thinking and got me trying to think about, you know, are there ways that I could be having a greater impact both with the skills that I learned at BlackRock and then also with my educational background, you know, from Brown University. Um, And so that led me to the Clinton Foundation. Um, I interviewed there. It was a long interview process. I didn't know how I was doing. And then, you know, at the end of the process, I said, okay, is there anywhere that you wouldn't go? And I said, no, I'll go anywhere. And they said, great, we're sending you to Nigeria. (laughs) (laughs) They must have been like, ah, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I don't know where that is. So, okay, cool. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so what happens when you get the offer from the Clinton Health Access Initiative and you land in Nigeria? Well, you know, I think, you know, we were talking about this before. Abuja Mm -hmm. is very different from Lagos. and. Um, my, my dad is Indian. My dad is from Bombay. And so I've been to Bombay or Mumbai, um, you know, a few times growing up to visit my family there. And I was expecting to see some kind of a very hectic, polluted, loud, you know, lots of crowds kind of thing. 
I landed in Abuja, I remember at about 5 a.m. on the British Airways flight. It was July, must have been July 28th or something, 2008. Mm. And the driver picks me up. We're driving into town. And I just remember thinking, where are the people? I feel like I'm in Santa Fe. You know, the boulevards are so wide and the roads are so well paved and there's nobody around. Um, and so it was, it was very interesting for me the first few days in Abuja because it just, it wasn't like what I had thought, you know, my quote unquote African experience would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't really until I got outside of the capital city and started traveling for work that I started to see what I feel like is more representative of the real Nigeria. Okay. And uh, which was what? What did you see? <laughs> Abuja is Abuja is a funny place. It's you know there's so much wealth in that very very small city, and if you start talking to people, you realize that most of the street cleaners and the sweepers and the drivers and the taxi drivers, you know, they don't live in Abuja. They travel in for work every day, yes. and they actually fight commutes just about as as hard as the Lagos commutes from the mainland to the island. You know, they'll sit in traffic for three four hours in the morning to get into town so they can do their jobs and then they'll go back to Nasarawa state um, where most of them live, okay. you know, on the way back home. So it's, it's, it's not a very organic city at all. It hasn't really grown. It's been so planned. Um, and it was, it was surprising to me, but uh, you know, it also was, it also was an easy transition because I could get my morning jog on in my tama and, you know, walk to the market and, and feel very secure and not feel like I was going to get jumped by area boys or something yeah. like that. And area boys, uh, could you explain that for people that don't know what they are? <laughs> sure. I mean, area boys, to my, to the best of my knowledge, uh, are you know somewhat of thuggish characters that tend to take advantage of people in Lagos or in other large cities. Um, you know, I think that crime actually has gone down a lot in Lagos, but there used to be a, a lot of uh, a lot of armed robberies and violent crimes. You know, people stealing your cell phone, people stealing your purse driving up on a motorcycle and just sort of snatching something and driving. Um, that, that's something that, you know, Nigeria has faced challenges within a lot of their cities. Yeah. Okay. So you are safe enough to take a morning jog in Abuja without any area boys harassing you. That's a yeah. positive thing to note. The most, the most you'll get is Oibo. And what does that mean for people like, that don't know? Hey, white person, yeah. how are you doing? Yeah. Uh, and more of a more of a curiosity factor than a threat, you yes. know. And so you just say, "I'm fine. How are you?" Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're like, "Oh, you're jogging so well." And <laughs> you know, I, I actually started to really like the Nigerian culture because I feel like, you know, growing up in New England in Boston, people are very much like, "Let me look down at the sidewalk, and I don't want to interact with any other stranger." And you know, God forbid if somebody said hi to me in the street. Um, and being in an environment where, you know, people in the elevator will greet you and just say, oh, how are you? How is your night? You know, not because they want anything, just because they want to interact with you. Yeah. I, I found that to be really refreshing. That's cool. That's very cool. Okay. So talk to us about your experiences working in Abuja and working around Nigeria with the Clinton Initiative. Sure. So my boss was very adamant, and I think correctly so, that, you know, you can't you can't make a job at the Clinton Health Access Initiative just be a desk job because if you were really trying to save, you know, babies that have HIV, which is basically what we were trying to do, like you have to go out to the to the clinics that they and, and see what they experience and actually go out and see what is it like to be a mother who has a sick child who's trying to get, you know, treatment and access in 
a general hospital in Plateau State, for example, or something like that. So, you know, very quickly in my um, in my time at, at the Clinton Health Access Initiative, I was on the road quite a bit, going out to small clinics, um, checking to see. I was I was in charge of a twenty million dollar donation of pediatric HIV products, and so part of the job was. Are these are these products actually getting out to the clinics, or are they just sitting in the central medical warehouse, you know, in Oshodi and Lagos? Um, you got to get out to the clinic and see, and then ask the pharmacist. You know, are you able to prescribe this? What happens when you run out? Can you get more? You know, how do you do that? So, um, you know, it was actually on those trips in the early days that I first had the idea for Tomato Jaws back in you know the fall winter of two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, because I used to do a lot of traveling around the north and when you're driving in the roads, like from, since you've never been outside of Lagos, you wouldn't know, but when you're driving from Kaduna to Kano, um, in certain times of the year, you literally will just see miles and miles and miles of farmland and the, the farmers are farming tomatoes during the dry season and they're just drying them on the side of the road because they're trying to preserve them because they can't make a market. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a very striking image. And it was one that, you know, stuck with me when I came back to Abuja and I asked around and I said, why are these farmers, you know, growing so many tomatoes? And they're like, oh, that's just what they do. It's tomato season. And I'm like, well, why can't they sell them? You know, I see tomatoes for sale on the market. And they're like, well, you know, they rot before they can get to the market. So the farmers just try to dry them and then they try and eat them all year round because they don't have anything else to do with them. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's no, uh, there's no canning or any kind of preserving mechanism on a large scale available in the country. So, you know, even back in 2008, I was thinking to myself, like, I'm going to start a tomato cannery in Nigeria. Like if you, if you started, you know, I, I I'm like, I like to cook a lot. Okay. Um, and one of the, one of the guys in our compound taught me how to make red stew Yeah. and you know, you use tomatoes, but you also use a lot of tomato paste because it's a lot easier and it's a lot faster <laughs> when you when you add a packet of paste and then you, you know, put a couple of tomatoes in for the flavor. And I looked on the back of the tomato can and, you know, it was made in China. Wow. And I just thought that's so weird because there's so many, I just saw all those tomatoes, you know, up in Kano mm-hmm. that couldn't make a market. And now I'm buying this tin from China. Like, why is that the case? Um, but, you know, at the time, I never really had the confidence to pursue that full time. Full time. Okay. I had a very, very busy job, you know, trying to work within the HIV health system. Um, but it was something that I used to think about from time to time and say, you know, this is just a really funny problem. Mm. Um, and it just, it just stuck with me and it, you know, became something I even think I wrote about it in my HBS essay probably because it was something that, you know, it was such an obvious solution and it, nobody seemed to be able to tackle it. Yeah. And it's funny how, like we were talking earlier, that you were able to travel around the north at that time in 2008. I was born and raised in Lagos. I pretty much have always been in and around Lagos. So <laughs> we, I mean, I, I would say for me, we didn't really explore much. I don't know about other Nigerians if they were able to travel around, but um, a bunch of my friends, I can count on one hand, how many of them have said they've been to Katina, to Kaduna by road, or to Nasarawa? We, we, we just hear about that in geography class. I'm like, okay, at least we, we know about the other 36 states. We don't know where they are. I've never been in there. It's not like if you're in the U.S., you know, you and your friends will want to do like a road trip from, I don't know, New York to California. Nobody thought about that, you know. And here you are driving around in the north, seeing all these problems in real time. Um, 
I know we can talk about this later, but you you felt relatively safe going to do your job with the Clinton Health Access Initiative around these small towns, right? There was no problem at that time. No, no problem at that time. So when I when I was there, for the Nigerians in the audience, it was when Yaradua was still in power. Okay. Um, before he got sick and eventually died. And so, you know, at that time, there really wasn't a threat of terrorism. Um, there were some clashes. We actually had a very scary thing happen to us in Jos. Um, mm. It was a, you know, Jos is a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, I was there for a colleague of mine's wedding. Our accountant got married. And our whole office went up to Jos for the wedding. Um, but it happened to be the day after these local government elections, LGA elections, um, that had been rigged. And there was a huge repercussion, you know, that turned into a Christian Muslim sort of battleground issue. And we ended up, you know, not being able to stay in the hotel that we meant to stay in because all of the streets around there were getting burned. There were cars that were getting burned, you know, all these things were happening. So we stayed in a different hotel. The next day we go for the wedding and, you know, we were trying to get fuel. I still remember this very clearly. I was actually just talking with it about a friend of mine yesterday. We were reminiscing about this, that we turned down a side street to go to the gas station to get fuel so that, you know, after the wedding, we could just leave town. And we saw a wall of hundreds of people just walking up the street, um, holding machetes. And we were like, oh, my God. So the driver just backs down the street, turns down the street, <laughs> drive away. We were like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this is serious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, during the wedding ceremony, we could hear gunshots going off, like, down around the block. Uh, it, was, it was a very subdued wedding, clearly, and yeah. we had a military escort to let us out of town um, to help us get out safely. So, there, you know, there certainly are things about the country that um, it's safe until it's not, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be scary if you don't know the signs of when and how something like that is going to bubble up. Mm. Um, and so, you know, our boss, at, our boss at the Clinton Health Access Initiative, Dr. Owens Wiwa, takes, uh, you know, still does take security very, very, very seriously. And so, you know, when there was a time I went down to Umeo, um in the south-south, so like sort of near, um, yeah. near Cameroon. Yeah. You know where that is. Um, <laughs> and... You know, there had just been a slew of kidnappings, and they were political kidnappings. They weren't, like, people who were kidnapping, you know, white people, although that also happens in that region because, you know, they, they think you're an oil worker if you yeah. go down there. Um, and we had a we had a military, not a military, a police escort of um, three guys with AK-47s, and then they gave the youngest guy the rocket launcher, the grenade launcher. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, he doesn't know how to shoot the, the gun yet, so we'll give him the, you know, mm-hmm. this one's easier to point. I was like... <laughs> So we're going to these health clinics and, you know, um, every time we go to the hospital, I felt so bad because, you know, for me, a lot of what we're trying to do is help patients. But it's very disruptive if you go to a hospital and four policemen come into the hospital and clear it out to make sure there's nobody who's going to kidnap you. And you're like, okay, actually, you should let the mother and the child sit in the waiting room. They're probably not going to be kidnapping us, you know, making sure that we're not disrupting patient flow and the natural course of you know, doctors and nurses and the, the things that they're trying to do mm-hmm. as we're going in to check the pharmacy for X, Y, Z, or do whatever programmatic work that we're trying to do. So yeah. I've, I've definitely had my fair share of sort of uh, weird experiences, um, you know, and, and security concerns. Nigeria mm-hmm. is not a place, it's not like Malawi. It's not a, it's not like Kenya. Well, it's not like Tanzania, you know, it's not a place that's a natural tourist destination. Yeah. Um, 
And that's not to say that there aren't amazing things about the country, but the infrastructure is not really set up to capitalize on all of the amazing things that the country has to offer. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be a little bit scrappy, a little bit brave, maybe a little bit foolhardy um, to, to really try and operate in the country. But, but it's experiences like that that made me think, okay, if I can manage this, you know, if I can make sure that I'm secure and that, you know, I'm still being productive, even in this environment, then, you know, that's actually a rare skill and I should be using that skill. Yeah. That's good. And you met your co-founder Shane while on the job also. That's right. Okay. So, so it's funny because Shane actually had worked at BlackRock when I did, but he was in the London office. So we oh. had never met before. Okay. Um, but we ended up working on a project together in Kenya in 2010. Uh, we were both working on writing a grant for the Kenyan Ministry of Health to help them get more money from the UN um, for their HIV program. Okay. So Shane was leading up the grant writing process and I was helping out with one small piece of it. And, you know, we ended up working together on a few different projects during our time at CHAI. Mm-hmm. Um, we call the Clinton Health Access Initiative CHAI. It's just an easier acronym yeah. for us. So, you know, if they always say that the, the best co-founder relationships are ones where, you know, it's not necessarily your best friend that you're going in with. It's not a stranger, but it's somebody that you've had a professional working relationship mm-hmm. with. You guys understand how each other operates. You have a lot of trust. You have the same values, you know, and you know that you have complementary skill sets. And we sort of have a perfect partnership in that regard because, um, you know, I think we I think we complement each other very well. So, you know, fast forward two years, we both were at Harvard. Um, I was at the business school and Shane was at the School of Public Health. And we, you know, stayed in touch, would get drinks, you know, every few months and, when I started to get serious about this tomato thing, um, Shane was starting to get serious about a, a poultry idea that he had for Kenya. And we talked it out and we decided, okay, let's, let's try the tomato thing together. Let's, you know, join forces and see, you know, how far we can really take this. And so, you know, that was, that was just under a year ago. That was actually in January of this year that we really started to get serious about this project. Okay. And, you know, we're, we're so excited that we've taken it so far. Well, as far as we have in yeah. this 11 months. Okay. So um, let's talk about, you said you had the idea for a couple of years since 2008. It was just incubating in your mind. Yeah. And then you speak with Shane. Talk to us about your experience. So you went from Clinton Chai, let's call it Chai, to business school, right? That's right. Okay, so everyone in business school, you know, would typically, especially from HBS, you have a couple paths to take, you know, management consulting, investment banking, Silicon Valley, maybe go into the industry and take a management position. And I'm sure you'll be talking about this either in your first year or your second year or in between when you have to do the internship. So when everyone else is talking about, you know, Goldman Sachs or whoever interviewing, what was the reaction like when you are talking farming, tomatoes, <laughs> and agriculture in Nigeria? Um, that's that's probably going to be like a unique. <laughs> I'm probably the only farmer coming out of HBS. <laughs> out of- <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the most unique thing in a class where everyone is probably going to do similar things. You're thinking of going to work in the fields, in the soil, you know, set up a factory. I work with farm, rural farmers in rural Nigeria, well, northern Nigeria. 
Well, it took me a while to come around to the decision. Okay. I think, you know, when I, if we, if we sort of rewind a little bit back to when I first came to HBS, mm-hmm. I was very intimidated because I felt like I didn't have the typical profile of an HBS student. I didn't have management consulting background. You know, I had worked in finance, but on, you know, for a mutual fund company and only for two years. And then I had worked for an NGO and, you know, all these private equity people and all these consulting people could talk so well. And, you know, um, I didn't know really how to read an income statement or a balance sheet or, you know, let alone any of the accounting stuff, which is still not my strong suite, which is, we can talk about that. Uh, when we talk about some of the more frustrating elements of being an entrepreneur, things at the top of the list. But, um, you know, so I, I decided that in my first year that I wanted to take a break from everything that I had done before. I said, okay, HPS is a time when I can really explore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people come into HPS for different reasons. Some people come because they know they want to change from one industry to another. Some people come because like if you, you know, worked in private equity, but you want to be a partner, you need to have the MBA from a top school. So they're okay. just coming and they're sort of on vacation. You know, some people come because they want to get into management consulting. Yes, I can see you. You can see me? Okay. Good. All right. So where were we? We were talking about, um, you know, why people come to HBS. Yes. And my sort of experience coming in and being very intimidated by yes. all these people who seemed to know exactly what they wanted. And exactly. I didn't really know what I wanted. And I, you know, um, I wasn't sure. So I said, let me take a break from everything that I've done before. You know, I've worked in finance. I've worked in healthcare. I worked in the, non- the nonprofit sort of sector. Um, I worked for, you know, pretty blue chip names. Clinton is a pretty good name. BlackRock is a pretty good name. Um, let me try something different. So the the first summer internship that I took, um, I was thinking, okay, like maybe I should work for Groupon or I should work for a tech company or, you know, try something like that. But I was like, I, I want to try this entrepreneurship thing. Mm. Um, and so I ended up working at a company that makes uh, drone sailboats, okay. the oil and gas industry. So I was like, okay, new industry. Definitely don't know anything about that. I'm the business person working with five engineers. Definitely don't actually know a lot about business, except for what I learned in the first year. And, um, you know, oil and gas, okay. High-tech, you know, physical products, okay. Um, let's let's try it. And I, I loved the feeling of, you know, being an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. being a very small team where your actions – you know, clearly make a big impact every day. Um, and it's possible to see every day, you know, and look back at the day and say, okay, I've done this and that's moved the company forward here. Um, you know, I didn't love the oil and gas industry. I thought it was really interesting. I loved learning about it, but I was like, I don't think that this is ultimately where I want to be in the end game. Um, and I was like, well, now thinking back in my second year, what did I miss? You know, what did I miss that I had walked away from? And I really, really missed, the Africa piece, um, you know, the the Harvard Africa Business Club at HBS is just an incredible community. We call ourselves like the family, okay. and you know, it's it's just a very very social group, but it's also very business driven. People really want to help each other, create a strong network that you know will last and will be usable, you know, for us in the working and professional world once we go out into the world. And okay. so, I missed that environment um, until my second year. I realized I didn't really miss healthcare that much, uh, but I did miss Africa and I did miss the sort of social entrepreneurial element, the, the element of having a, having an impact. Yeah. 
having an impact on people who, you know, you feel like I really wanted to help. Um, so, you know, even then in the second year, I was still interviewing for regular jobs. Um, because everybody does, you yeah. know, and, uh, and it's scary to sort of just leap off a cliff and say, I'm going to do this. Um, you know, I'm going to not have a salary and I'm going to try and do something that I don't know if it's going to work and something I don't have a background in. Yeah. Um, but, but really what sort of pushed me over the edge and let me said, made me, made me say like, yeah, I think I want to do this was actually, I think we had talked about this before was Dan Gote. Yeah. So, you know, as you had told me, I think earlier you said most people would be very afraid of entering an industry where Dengote has sort of staked a claim yeah. because he's pretty ruthless with his competition and he's, you know, very, very aggressive and he has a huge amount of capital to push behind any project that he sets his mind to. Okay, so for people who don't know, Dengote is essentially, if you've been living under a rock, Dengote is Africa's richest man. He has somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 billion, $35 billion. I mean, that's what Forbes can track. Uh, I, I believe it's probably twice as much, <laughs> really, because I think they're only basing it off one of his um, companies that is publicly listed. So, um, essentially, Mira wants to go against somebody that has, let's call it, unlimited amounts of dollars to spend on any industry he wants to spend. Okay. Yes. So Degote has made a name for himself in cement and sugar, yes. and he's expanded into food products. He has a line of juices. He has a line of instant noodles. He has a line, I think, of pasta and spaghetti. Um, and, you know, he's now moving into even more things in Nigeria, oil refineries, fertilizer, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I learned from a friend of mine from the Africa Business Club, you know, when I was telling her, I was like, well, you know, I have this pipe dream about tomato paste that I've had for now, you know, four or five years. And she's like, oh, Dangote is doing that. And I was like, what? what? She's like, yeah, there were all these articles last summer about how he's building this big tomato paste factory in northern Kano. And I was like, oh, my God, Dangote stole my idea. <laughs> so... <laughs> so so I was, so I started reading all the articles about it mm -hmm. and I, you know, maybe this is the wrong approach, but for me, I said that was actually a validating factor. I said, yeah. if the richest man in Africa thinks that there's a market opportunity here, mm -hmm. there's probably a market opportunity here. Yeah. And if you do the research on Nigeria and on tomato paste, and I've done a lot of research now over the last 11 months, Nigeria is the largest importer of tomato paste in the world. Wow. Um, they bring in so give us some figures. <laughs> What's that? Give us some figures. Sure. So, so they bring in um, about four hundred million dollars worth of tomato paste every year. Uh, Ninety percent of it comes from China. If you watch my Kickstarter video, yeah. um, you'll see that that's actually enough tomato paste to fill the Empire State Building twice. twice yeah. uh, it's a lot of tomato paste. Nigerians yeah. cook with a huge amount of tomato paste, and um, and it's just a big country, you know. And so, I did the math. I did a little bit of, um, I guess, underground research, back-channel research, and I figured out what the size of his factory was, and mm -hmm. I realized that even if he's operating at full capacity, you know, he's not going to be able to serve more than 15% of the market. Yes. So I said... Because that's, what, 180 million people. I think for people, we need to break this down. So that's yeah. about 180 million people, and let's say even if it's 90 million people, I know in my house at least we have stew, and we have soup every week. And sometimes some families have three types of soups. At least two or three of those dishes require a whole lot of tomatoes. 
Yes. Much less the jollof rice, which is purely <laughs> tomatoes. So you're talking at least every week, each family con- consumes, let's call it a basket of tomatoes. Is that a, a fair assessment? Well, I can tell you actually what the okay. numbers are. Sure. So um, the average Nigerian eats 14... It's not actually that much. That's the thing. It's $14 worth of tomatoes a month. Okay. Um, and something like $2 worth of tomato paste. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's $2 worth of tomato paste actually in a year. But tomato paste is really cheap. It's mm-hmm. a company, which we'll talk about. <laughs> we talk about how I'm going to actually make money on this business. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, Nigerians eat, so they eat about $2 worth of $2.25 or something, $2.35 worth of tomato paste per person per year. Mm-hmm. And if you actually compare that to America, Americans eat $20 worth of tomato paste per person per year. Wow. Uh, because we eat so much what we call like value-add tomato products. So we have pizza, and we have pasta, and we have tomato sauce, and all these other things. So the room for the tomato paste market to grow in Nigeria is actually huge because, yeah. number one, the population is growing, you know, and the population will continue to grow, and the GDP is growing at about 7%. So mm-hmm. you can imagine that that's just organic growth. And yeah. two, the per-person consumption of tomato paste, we think, is going to increase um, pretty significantly, even if it only increased by a dollar in the next, you know, say, five years. And if the population keeps growing at the same rate that it's growing at, the market will expand from $400 million to $700 million. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just in the next five years. So, so we really think that there is a big opportunity here, um, and it's not just an opportunity to make money, but it's an opportunity to make a difference and in the lives of jobs. People. Also, sorry, and create jobs also. Yeah, and create a lot of jobs. So we want to, you know, I've been I've been doing a little bit of research on sort of you know rural impact, and there's there's two ways you can make rural impact. Well, there's three. One is through, um, you know, jobs. So if we create a processing facility that's in a rural area, we can actually attract skilled labor, get, you know, more people into the factory, employ women um, who typically wouldn't necessarily be farming because farming in Nigeria tends to be something that men do. The second way to, you know, create more economic income is to work with the farmers who do have land and help them to be more productive tomato farmers. So... Even though we're talking about, you know, all these tomatoes rotting on the side of the road, if we put a production facility, a factory in place, we actually would need those farmers to even produce at a higher yield. Okay. Um, because tomato paste is a very localized business. So you need to be able to draw from very, very productive farms within a very small radius of where your processing facility is because tomatoes are so fragile. Yeah. So the farmers that we work with will be producing a much higher yield and they will be able to sell 100% of their produce. So they will be making much, much more income. We think up to five times more income than they're making today. Okay. And the third way that we can impact the rural economies is by having our own farm, which we can use as both an education center and as a mechanism for employment for non, non-landed farmers. So farmers who actually don't have enough money to rent or own their own land, mm-hmm. but are now you know sort of sharecropping or working on other people's farms. We can provide them with a steady, consistent, source of income and source of an opportunity for farming on our own farm. So, you know, we really see ourselves as being able to make a huge impact in the area that, you know, we're trying to operate in in Nasarawa State. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) So, graduation comes around and then you read about, you heard about Dangote going into this industry. Graduation comes around. Tell us (laughs) how you go after cap and gown 
Straight, straight to Nigeria. <laughs> Nigeria, basically three weeks later. Yeah. So, so I I did start to do a little work on this while I was still in school. Okay. Um, the the sort of revelation of like, hey, Dangote is doing this. I can do this. That happened about just about this time last year. It happened about November of last year. Okay. So I um, I went to Nigeria in January. I started scoping out the scene. You know, met up with some of my old friends who had worked at Clinton. And met up with a few, you know, with the with the HBS connection, the Harvard Business School connection, mm. was able to talk to a few different private equity companies and a few different, you know, non-governmental organizations like USAID and DFID to start asking them about, you know, this opportunity and whether people thought that there was an opportunity here. And it got a pretty positive response. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I said to myself, okay, great. I have these three job offers. I'm killing them. Uh, <laughs> if I... If- <laughs> All right. Um, I just want to have... a context where were these job offers from okay so one was at um a biotech company called regeneron which i was actually very very excited about i think it's a great company and they produce some really really cool um you know products for very sick people Mm -hmm. um the second one was at a company called thermo fisher scientific they make a lot of uh diagnostic materials um that are used in laboratories and then the third one was for a company called Elsevier, which does sort of medical publishing. Okay. So they were all sort of related to health and that sort of area of my life. And I felt like while they were all very interesting in their own ways, I didn't think I was going to be waking up at six in the morning, like, and jumping into the shower and get excited about going to work, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and I just felt like, you know, this is the time of my life when I should be trying to pursue that. I should be trying to find that passion and trying to find that thing that's going to, like, get me jumping out of bed without even having a, a morning coffee. Yeah. yeah. And so so I said, you know what? If I could find three really good jobs in December, there's no reason why I can't find three really good jobs in June, say this thing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So let me just clear my mind of all those jobs, focus on this. And I said, I'm giving myself between January and June to figure out three things. One, is this ep- economically viable? Like, do the numbers work? Two, is this operationally viable? Is it actually possible to make tomato paste in Nigeria, given all of the challenges of working in an emerging market? Mm-hmm. Three, is this politically viable? Am I going to get squashed by Dangote? Am I going to get killed because there is an election, you know, or because of Boko Haram, yeah. the terrorist group? You know, is it actually going to be possible um, on those three factors? And so with that sort of in the back of my mind, I put together a team, and Shane was, you know, the cornerstone of that team. Um, and we started entering this idea into a few different business plan competitions at Harvard. And every time we, you know, failed a business competition, mm-hmm. we regrouped, we got feedback from the people who had given us, you know, the failing grade. And we wrote another proposal again. And it was better than the last one until we got to the point where we actually wrote something that, you know, kind of made sense. Okay. So and basically you're using the feedback from the failure Yes. <laughs> to further direct your line of thinking and to refine what you were yes. doing. That's, that's pretty good. Because some people will probably just give up when they say, oh, my gosh, I'm in the business plan competition. It failed. I guess this isn't going to work. <laughs> you you are just using it as, you know, a feedback loop to keep going forward. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to have a strong conviction and you have to be willing you have to balance out sort of your passion and desire for this business to work, which I think is a huge, huge, huge factor in whether or not something will work yeah. with being receptive, you know, and not defensive when somebody tells you, Hey, this thing doesn't make sense. Or, Hey, have you thought about this? Or, you know, your growth plan is crazy. You know, how are you going to jump from two hectares to a thousand hectares in a year? You know, and you're like, Oh, you can't just 
you know, just buy some tractors. Yeah. No, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's a, <laughs> so, you know, learning, um, learning how and when to, to take that feedback. Um, and also understanding that, you know, it's, while it's, it's really good to get everybody's perspective and everybody's opinion at the end of the day, there are some things that you have to decide for yourself. Yeah. You know, there are some things like, you know, people told me just do it as a plantation. Don't make it social. Why would you involve the smallholder farmers? You're going to not be as profitable. And for me, you know, that's a huge part of why I'm interested in doing this is because I really want to work with rural people, rural farmers, and help them to, you know, become more wealthy and to be able to have more agency in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was like a further challenge. Okay, not not like I should abandon that piece of the business line, but now I need to figure out a way to make that a cornerstone of the business, you know, and, and figure out like how not just to hide that piece under the rug, but how do you actually strengthen that component until it makes sense and, you know, can really be a part of your business. Okay. So, so definitely, you know, taking the feedback, learning from the failures, being humble um, is important. And then seeking out help, you know, asking questions and telling people you don't know. And, you know, definitely for me, I think one thing that I took advantage of, I wish I had taken advantage of even more was while I was a student, you know, calling up anybody that I could and saying, hi, I'm a student at HBS, you know, do you have 30 minutes to talk to me about X, Y, Z? You know, when you're a student calling and asking questions, you're much less threatening than when you're saying, hi, I'm starting a company, you know, uh, do you have time to talk to me? So that was how I got to talk with the head of um, the Heinz seed division, you know, managed to finagle them into giving us a donation of seeds. Uh, (laughs) That was how I got to talk to um, the Morningstar Packing Company, which is the largest tomato paste processor in the world. They're based out in California. They run, I think, about a $700 million business. Hmm. And we talked to this. Shane and I went out to California. We're like, oh, yeah, we happen to be in Sacramento. You know, come see you. I met with the CEO for an hour and a half. You know, and that was how we went to this you know, this guy, Stuart Wolf, who's one of the largest tomato farmers in California and runs a fully integrated processing facility and talked, talked our way into spending an entire day with him on his ranch, um, you know, to learn everything that we could about what, what this looks like, what people are doing it right. Okay. You know, so that we can so, then bring that knowledge back to Nigeria. Okay. So let's pause here for a little bit. You <laughs> had no contact or, I mean, your, does your family know these people or it's, it was just pure cold calling and pure... Hustle. Okay. <laughs> I've got a little bit of hustle in me, yeah. Okay, okay. Because, I mean, some people would also be very intimidated to call up somebody that's, like, the biggest tomato farmer in California and say, hey, um, could we come spend one day with you and find out about how you're running your business or your operation? But that's, like, um, some people even saying, hey, Dangote, can I come and sit with you for 10 minutes and talk to you about you know, your sugar sugar plants and stuff like that, you know. It's very intimidating to a lot of people. They want to start businesses, but those initial first steps of, like, you know what, using your student advantage, because like you just said, it's non-threatening. Oh, this person is a student. They want to know more. And, and I think those people actually find it flattering and interesting that you're interested in talking to them about their business, because how many people do that? Most yeah. people just come and want to, like, take, 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 take. But you're giving them an opportunity to give back you know, so they kind of look forward to those things. So, okay. Yeah, that's basically exactly it, you know. And, and obviously, you you know, you have to figure out what works for you. Um, I, 
really like to ask questions. I really like to learn, you know, um, you have to be a little bit flattering. You have to be a little bit like, Oh, you know what you're doing is so amazing. And you know, stroke their ego a little bit Mm -hmm. and, and you'll be amazed at how many doors you can open that way, you know, but it's also, it's also important to be genuine. You know, like if, if you're not, if you're not really authentically interested or you don't really want to actually learn about that thing from that person, you know, that comes through as well and, and it can backfire on you. So I think it's very important to be intentional, um, and to know, you know, when and how much time is appropriate to take, uh, you know, and and these are busy people also. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're very busy people. So it's a lot about, you know, reading other people. I think that's one of the things that you don't really realize in business school. And this is something that Shane and I have, you know, dealt with time and time again, is just the interpersonal issues that, you know, at the end of the day, even if you have a perfect business plan, um, it's the execution that matters. And execution is all about people. You know, people have to execute and people have to be willing to trust each other that they're doing the right things and, you know, able to work together and able to communicate and able to say when, hey, I don't think this is going right or, hey, I have a question about this or, you know, hey, I think we made a mistake here or, you know, whatever it is or or I have a new idea, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe we can work this into the plan. And so, you know, the human element of business is is so so important and i think it's it's something that you you really learn by doing okay. um, another thing i noticed is that you were very open and sharing your your potential business with other people because some people would say hey i want to start a business but i can't tell you about it until you <laughs> sign like a non-disclosure agreement and it's dude ideas are diamond dozen really Ex- execution is the key so you were very open in stating what you wanted to do even though it was just an idea and just a dream at that point. So at least people see, oh, this person has a vision. They're also interested in what I'm doing. They're a student. They want to learn more. All those factors kind of tie into like, okay, let me see how much I can share, how interested this person is, how committed this person is. And then the the loop just keeps on circulating. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, I think for me, you know, we're working right now um, out of the, the Harvard iLab when I'm in the US, that's where I that's where I base my operations. And you know, you see a lot of companies that feel the need to be secretive about what they're doing, mm-hmm. as you've said. For me I think, you know, every time I talk to somebody about my business, it's an opportunity for me to learn something. Yeah. Um, it's an opportunity for me to practice pitching, right? And to practice selling my story, selling my dream, selling my idea. And it's an opportunity for me to learn something that I might not know or get connected to somebody who I might not know who might be able to help me. So, you know, of course it's scary. Um, it's super scary to be telling everybody, you know, what you feel like are your biggest secrets. Um, and, you know, hope that they don't just come in and try and take over your business. But at the end of the day, I don't think a lot of people really want to be in Kefi and us are living in a chicken coop. Yeah. <laughs> Converted chicken coop. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think, as you said, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen and it's execution. And so if you can speak clearly about your idea and get some people involved to help you, you know, clarify your idea and um, strengthen it, then that's only, that's only good. You know, that's only a good thing. Okay, great. So we've gotten that out of the way. You rejected three good offers. You got the job. So now what happens? You and Shane head off to Nigeria. You talk yeah. to who? The Minister of Agriculture? Or... 
Well, we we had um, we had gotten some prize money from the Harvard Business School. We ended up getting second place in that competition, and it came with a cash prize, which was awesome because okay. we were like, great, you know, now we have twenty five thousand dollars. Let's go see what we can do with that money. Let's go, you know, try and actually get this off the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, this happened at the end of April, uh, right? April of twenty fourteen. April twenty fourteen. Yeah, okay. so just about six months ago. Okay, and. Um, Basically, in the week after the competition, we were feeling really great. We were like, awesome, we're going to go to Nigeria. We're going to like start this tomato paste thing. And then the Chibok girls got kidnapped. Yeah. And so if you have been reading about the news, most of the things you know about Nigeria are about, you know, bring back our girls, bring yeah. back our girls. Um, there was a bomb blast in Abuja. There was a second bomb blast in Abuja. And Abuja is a pretty safe place. You know, and Boko Haram, this terrorist organization that's been very active in northern Nigeria, which, by the way, is where tomatoes grow, mm -hmm. um, was seeming to pick up a lot of acceleration um, in terms of their activities. So yeah, we started okay. to get scared, actually. Yes. Um, we started to think, you know, what are we doing? My, I remember sitting down, actually, with my parents, because my parents are from Boston as well, and, you know, sitting down with them over breakfast, and my mom crying and being like, I can't believe you're going to go back, and it's so dangerous, and I'm so worried about you. Yeah. You know, and so so I thought to myself, okay, uh, you know, Shane's actually never even been to West Africa. Um, he oh, had only at that point, he had not been. To... <laughs> the <And> plot thickens. <laughs> he'd been, you know, he he'd worked in Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, Ethiopia, Lesotho. Okay. Like he'd never been like West Africa. Okay. West Africa. <laughs> so we're like doing some quick thinking and we're like, you know what? We had $25,000. Like what if we spend three weeks in Ghana mm -hmm. and three weeks in Nigeria? Because I think Ghana has the same problem. It's obviously a smaller country, a smaller but country. you know, here it's actually easier to do business. Let's see which environment, whether it's Ghana or Nigeria that will offer the environment that will allow us a to operate quickly, B to get investment that we think we need to actually get this business going mm. and, you know, C provide uh, enough of a, a growth uh, path to growth, you know, so that we can actually get to scale where this thing makes sense and it actually gets profitable. So we started scrambling in April and May because we, you know, my, my network is really mostly in Nigeria. I lived there for four years. I, at this point, know quite a few people and, you know, have been able to meet with and become friends with a number of farmers in various parts of the country, etc. We didn't really know anybody in Ghana, so <laughs> this is where we leveraged the Harvard network a lot. Um, you know, I was so fortunate to have some Ghanaian friends from HBS who, there's one other guy actually at HBS, uh, out of the 900 of us, he's, he's Ghanaian, and he is trying to uh, start and run a dairy farm in Ghana. Wow. So, <laughs> I was like, Kobe, I think I'm going to have to talk to him, too. <laughs> yeah. So, it's like, Kobe... We need help. We're going to come to Ghana. You know, can you help hook us up with a few meetings? And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and you just start doing the snowball sampling. You start having a call with one person and you say at the end of the call, do you have three more people I can talk to who you think would be useful for me to speak with? Mm -hmm. You know, and people generally, if they've had a good time talking with you, will say, sure. Yeah. You know, I think you should talk to this person, this person, and this person. And then you call all those people and you say, hey, I'm coming to Ghana in two weeks. I'd love to see your farm. You yeah. know, can I come check it out? Um and so we ended up being able to make a pretty good trip for ourselves. And the, the goal for the summer, you know, once we, you know, as I said, like to backtrack, 
in January, I was like, okay, is it economically feasible? Is it politically feasible? Mm-hmm. Is it operationally feasible? And I felt like I had pretty clear indications that it was on all three counts. Okay. The next question is, where are we going to operate? How are we going to sell this product? You know, how do we actually start operating? Um, and so the first thing that we needed was to find a location. So we spent seven weeks crisscrossing through Ghana and Nigeria. We went to about 16 different locations across the two countries um, to try and find out, you know, where is an area of land that has the right soil characteristics, the right temperature characteristics, access to water, access to farming communities um, that, you know, we could actually start operating on quickly. And, and, this, so, is based, and this is based off your research, right? Because you're not a farmer or an, or an agronomist. You were just researching these things, reading about it, and then trying, looking, to trying it out. Okay. Did you work with agronomists to help you test the soil and the weather or, or determine yeah. what the characteristics of <laughs> equal? Well, we've been, we've been working with, uh, we've actually now made two hires to, okay. to bulk up the, uh, the agronomist sort of science piece of the management team because we recognize that neither of us actually is a farmer. Yeah. When we were in, you know, when we were in Nigeria, we were doing a little bit of soil sampling. Um, Shane actually is an incredibly fast learner. So he has taken on um, the head of sort of our operations on the farm. And he's just done an incredible job researching, reading, contacting people. You know, we, we, as I said, we had sort of been in touch with a few people in California. So after our trip to Ghana and Nigeria, we gathered as much information as we could and then we went to California and met with the experts and we're like here here's what we found you know what do you think what do you guys think about these are our top three locations what do you think are the most important things to consider when we're trying to figure out what location to be in Mm -hmm. you know they hadn't necessarily been on the ground but based on the data that we had that we could share with them you know we got a pretty good indication of what are the factors that are most important for us to be able to to get an operation or up and off the ground And so based sort of on our, our, our ground research, we, we, tr- we put 4,000 kilometers on um, our friend's car in Nigeria, traveling, crisscrossing back and forth the country from Kano all the way down to Kwara State and eventually down to Lagos, um, okay. including run-ins with, you know, local thugs in Akiti State who, you know, they have... <laughs> okay, so what were some of your experiences doing all these road trips? Because... Oh I was just, we were talking about this earlier. It's not easy to drive from northern Nigeria to southern Nigeria oh. just like that, like you would from New York to California, for example. So what were some of your experiences like on the road, and well, what were the adventures you experienced while you were doing this? Sure. So, well, to give you a, a fast stat, this mm-hmm. is actually fascinating to me. It costs the same amount of money to ship goods over road from Kano to Lagos. Kano is like the northern city in Nigeria. It's a big, big city in the north, and mm-hmm. Lagos is where the ports are. It costs the same amount of money to ship a truck full of goods from Kano to Lagos as it does to ship them from China to Lagos. Wow. That's how bad the roads are. Yeah. There are some major infrastructural challenges. And what that means when you're actually in a car is that the roads are very, very, very bumpy. <laughs> So you can't drive fast. There are a lot of times, especially in the rainy season, where you have huge potholes, huge challenges. Um, and there are, you know, there are times when it's not safe at night to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still armed robbers on a lot of the roads. And, you know, you get a lot of military checkpoints and police checkpoints who 
are ostensibly there to keep you safe, but then also are asking for a little bit of money on the side to, yeah. you know, to uh, do their job. Do their job. <laughs> you know, they will say happy weekend. Happy so. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever might be happy Sunday, and yeah. that's kind of the code for hey, you know, uh, what do you have for me? Yeah. <laughs> so and we actually have, for the boys. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, one of the instances we had, we were driving around northern Nigeria and, and our, our driver um, is very adamant about not paying any kind of highway bribes. He's very, very, you know, he thinks it's very upsetting and he thinks, you know, they're getting paid a salary. They shouldn't be asking people for money. So he, he sort of blanket stop refuses to pay. Mm-hmm. What that ended up meaning was that every time we passed this one particular roadblock and we traveled down this road a few times because we were going back and forth between a farming community that we were looking at um, and Abuja, Mm. the guy would stop our car because he recognized us after the first time and would demand to see our passports. And we would have to walk over to the table and show him our passports and show him our yellow fever card and show him, you know, the uh, valid visas that were in our passports that would allow us to be in Nigeria Mm. and... You know, we got away without paying, but it was certainly, you know, you pay for it in time, right? You end up spending about 15, 20 minutes there just trying to explain to somebody, no, you know, I've actually saw you yesterday. You actually asked me the same question yesterday. Nothing has changed. Here's my passport. I still have it. You know, um, dealing with those kinds of issues. uh, It's it's tough. You know, it, it definitely makes Nigeria less efficient, I think, than a lot of countries um, because of some of these issues yeah. that you, know, you face just in day-to-day operations. Um, lots, but plus, lots of red tape. Yeah, lots of red tape. Um, but, you know, if you can operate in a, in a country where there are these inefficiencies, and if you believe that those inefficiencies will go away, then that only contributes to your bottom line, you know, once things start to clear up. But that's mm-hmm. the way we feel about, you know, power issues in the country. So, you know, for those of you who don't know, Nigeria doesn't really have a very functional electricity grid, um, especially not in the rural areas where we're planning to operate. So, you know, when we think about from a business perspective, the cost of energy, you know, the cost of um, what it will take to make the tomato paste, Mm -hmm. it's much, much more expensive than, you know, the way it is in California because they have, you know, much, much electricity. Um, So we've got to figure out if we can make a model that's profitable, even you know, using diesel generators, that's only going to be more profitable if and when, you know, Uh, our situation improves five years from now. So, so we're, you know, uh, we're boldly going where nobody's gone before, but, you know, and trying to make it work based on, you know, today's landscape um, with the hope that, you know, if it improves, we'll actually be doing that much better. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting because for facility of the size you're you're thinking and talking about that you, you need a lot of diesel for that yes and <laughs> that's not going to be a small expenditure because even in our family business we run like our generators all the time so you can only imagine that's lagos where it's a big city mm-hmm. you know people go to work at least you expect to see power even if it's for a few hours at night or whatever you expect you still expect some power in the rural part not so much (laughs) (laughs) not to my knowledge because i don't know no well i was i was in so when i say we're in kefi we're actually closer to a small town called panda like the panda bear okay (laughs) and 
I was I was actually there last week on the farm, and when I was driving back to Abuja to head back down to to Lagos um, for the weekend because I was I was flying out from Lagos, the the driver pointed out to me that there were actually electricity poles going up, and wow. he said they're trying to bring light to the town. Okay. Um, and so there are changes that are happening. You know, okay. there are things that um, you know give us hope that that the country really is trying to progress, and that state state by state, you know, people are actually trying to roll out. Things that will make a big difference in the lives of everyday Nigerians. Okay. Um, so you know, we're hoping to be a part of that change as well. Okay, that's great. So let's talk about your experiences, like building up your facility now, because you had to do a pilot system, right? Or is talk to well, us about your pilot system or sure. your infrastructure, like where are you sleeping, how you getting <laughs> your meals, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> sure. So, so the, the Kickstarter campaign that we're running right now is actually um, to raise enough money to buy the processing equipment. Okay. Uh, right now, we've, we've, we're in the process of also trying to raise enough money for the farming operations. Um, in the first year, we went, we went back and forth about this in our planning stage a lot, trying to figure out, you know, what do we need to prove and on how much land do we need to prove it before we can then go to scale? Because at scale, you know, we want to be a big player. We want to be able to provide, you know, at least 10% of the market yeah. share for, for tomato paste. But you have to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so we, we said to ourselves, okay, we can probably learn just as much farming two hectares of land, which is about five acres, um, as we can on 10. So we're starting with a two-hectare model farm. Um, we have... Uh, a, an agreement with a private landowner in Nasarawa State. Uh -huh. um, we're renting land from him on sort of a, a five-year basis. Okay. Um, and the initial the initial size is two hectares. We have a small greenhouse that we have constructed that Shane has been in charge of sort of managing uh, that that process. And we are now you know setting up our accommodations also on site. Uh, they say that the the best fertilizer for a farm is the farmer's footsteps. So you want to be close to where the action is. Um, and because we, you know, we're trying to operate as efficiently as we can and we don't want to waste any money, you know, on extraneous things, from an accommodation standpoint, that actually means that we are uh, living in chicken coops. <laughs> Converted chicken coops. So, Explain. So, uh, so there's, you know, there's a... There's a concrete floor. Okay. Um, there is basically um, about half a meter of skirting around the floor to make sure that, you know, if rain comes, it doesn't rain in. Okay. And then it's open chicken wire and mosquito netting um, okay. around the four walls. And uh, plastic tarp that can come down if it rains to okay. protect you from the rain. But we're actually not even putting walls in place um, outside of just the, the posts that will hold up the chicken wire and the, the mosquito netting. Um, and then an open roof, uh, like a tin roof with sort of wood underneath it. Um, and, you know, we're really trying to, we're making the guest accommodation nice. As I said to you earlier, we've hired um, an agronomist from California mm -hmm. who has experience working in very, very productive farms um, for the first growing season to help us figure out our trial, you know, start to do the first kind of uh, smallholder programming. And, you know, for that person, we want them to be comfortable. But for mm -hmm. us, we feel let's put all of the money into the program. Um, okay. Let's try and keep overheads as low as we can. So, wow. so we each have our own little chicken coop. 
<laughs> I'll be heading out there on December 2nd. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I'm going to live for the duration of the growing season. So December through March, I'll be in my coop. <laughs> wow. So you most probably be the first HBS grad to live in a chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> the first that I know of. The first that I know of. <laughs> wow, that's that's unbelievable. <laughs> well, well you know, um, I've never really wanted to do things the way that other people do them. I think mm. I've always sort of had a a streak of something different running through me, probably that I got from my parents. So, uh, you know, if you're not if you're not a little bit scared, you're not really living. I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely a little bit scared, but uh, yeah. but I think you know I think what we're trying to do is pretty cool. Yes, but I mean, if that's what you have to do to keep costs low, if you have to sleep in a chicken coop, you sleep in a chicken coop. <laughs> as long as the products get made and things get off the ground, I mean, you can always fly back to Boston and sleep in your bed, sleep <laughs> in the AC or whatever. I, don't get me wrong; I'm not trying to like minimize the impact of what you guys are going to do because. I myself cannot imagine just sleeping on the floor. It's it, it's really hard. So I, I really give you guys kudos and I commend you guys. It, it's not like a joke to just have, that's it, just mosquito netting, a tarp. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, you got to start somewhere. You right? have to start somewhere. You definitely do. And uh, yeah. I really commend you guys because that's like real dedication and commitment. A lot of people like... You know, you want to start a venture, but yet, you know, or I must have, like, at least a bed. I must have a nice place. Or some some people might actually build, like, a bungalow for themselves to, like, you know, be comfortable in and then work on the other things. But you guys are focusing on the things that you actually need to do to get the business of it. And that's that's very, that's very one impressive. It's also (laughs) inspiring, you know. Well, when we're operating against Dangote, who has unlimited resources, we've got to be really, really careful about how we're spending the limited money that we have. And yes. so you know, we think it's really important. And one of the things that we think, you know, that we have as an advantage um, over him is that, you know, because we're so small, we can move quickly. Yes. If we're careful with how we spend our money, you know, we can actually get operations up and off the ground, even in this first season. Yes. And so, you know, what we think we're doing that's different than what we've seen around us is that a lot of people... Who want to go into the tomato paste space, they start off um, with repackaging. So to give you guys a breakdown of how a lot of this works, um, as I said, most of the tomato paste, 90% of the tomato paste is coming from China. Uh-huh. And a lot of it comes in in these large, large, large uh, bulk containers. So yeah. it comes in like a one-ton aseptic drum or aseptic bag. Yeah. It comes in at a very high concentration. There are repackagers who basically take that uh, that very, very thick tomato paste and they water it down to the consumer level and they package it into a consumer container. So uh-huh. they either put it into a tin or into what we call a sachet. Okay. Um, a sachet is sort of like an oversized ketchup packet that tears off and you can just sort of squeeze the paste Good. out. Uh-huh. Um, and then those are what get sold in the market. And there are repackages in Nigeria operating yeah okay. there are there are actually quite a few so there okay. are two major repackagers and we've actually been in conversation with both of them um, about potentially coming on as a supplier for them and there are a lot of smaller smaller folks who are doing repackaging as well okay um, and their their plan is you know s- seems to be that people start with repackaging and they think I'm gonna integrate backwards so I'm yeah. gonna start by importing this product 
and selling it and creating a brand. And then I will build the farming capabilities and the processing capabilities, you know, and, and build backwards mm-hmm. out to the raw product. Yeah. We're doing it the opposite way. So we're saying, you know, from our perspective, we went to California. We met, as I said, with, you know, um, some very uh, successful tomato paste companies. And they said, look, you know, 60% of the cost of tomato paste is the tomato. Um, because it takes, it takes about seven tons of tomatoes to get one ton of paste because there's so much water inside tomatoes and you need to boil it all off, you yeah. know, to get like paste is called concentrate for a reason because it's concentrated, right? Um, and so it's really important to make sure that you can get the right quality of tomato, the right yield of tomato and get them, you know, able to be harvested in such a way that you can feed your factory. Um, tomato paste, tomatoes, as I said, you know, before, as everybody knows, they sort of, they don't keep very well. They're not like rice. They're not like grains. They're not like corn or maize. You know, they're not like soy. Basically, once you pick them, you have maybe 18 to 30 hours until you need to process them. Okay. Otherwise, they'll get too moldy and they'll get too squashed and everything else. So we said, let's start with the farm. Let's prove that we can actually grow the right tomatoes at the right yield. And not only that we can do it, but that we can train farmers to do it. You know, farmers who right now are growing very, very low quality tomatoes um, that they're unable to sell. So let's prove that we can do it. Let's prove that the farmers can do it. And when we get those proof points in place, then we can actually raise the money to buy large scale processing equipment and scale up the business because we'll know that the economics will work. Okay. So what are the right tomatoes? Are you getting your seeds from outside of Nigeria or your seeds are from inside Nigeria? It's a good question. So part of what we're doing in this first year on the two-hectare farm is that we're experimenting. We're doing a, a number of trials with about, I think, five or six different seed varieties. So we're looking at local seeds. We're also looking at seeds that are provided by some um, a few different companies. One is called Syngenta. Um, one, you know, Heinz also we're working with. Um, and then a few other companies that have been bringing in seeds into the country. Mm. Um, we want to make sure, and this is something, you know, for us, one of our key values um, is quality, and one of our key values is honesty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, operating in Nigeria, um, people have a lot of questions about bribery. We have a lot of questions about sort of, you know, uh, under-the-table dealings. Yeah. And, you know, we want to make it very clear that from the outset, you know, 100%, nothing that's business critical will ever be done that's not legal in the country. Yeah. And so that actually does place a fair amount of restriction yes, on the things we can bring. Um, because we, you know, we don't want, like, of course, if I wanted to, I could buy some seeds here, put them in my suitcase, not declare them and bring them into the country. Right. But that's not a sustainable way to do business. And it's not an honest way to do business. Mm -hmm. So based on sort of our understanding of how the Nigerian ministry of agriculture and, um, NAFDAC, which is like their version of the FDA, Um, how their how their approval of you know certain seeds and chemicals are those are the products that we're working with, okay. uh, and within that sort of subset of products that are allowed into the country, then we're trying to figure out what's the best variety that we can use, um, and then provide to our farmers you know to get them to be able to produce high quality tomatoes. Okay. Well, so, so that's it's a, it's a balancing act. <laughs> yeah, so that's going to be kind of time consuming because you have to balance all these different. Um, stakeholders and shareholders in order to get the right seeds into the country. Obviously, I'm sure there'll be some sort of standards, uh, regulations you have to fill out and all that stuff. And 
working with any governmental agency anywhere in the world is not the easiest thing to do, much less in Nigeria, which can take a really long time. Well, we're, we're lucky that the Ministry of Agriculture in Nigeria um, actually has been very, very progressive over the past few years. Yes. So Athena um, has gotten a lot of accolades and not without reason. He's actually put in a very good management team and a very good team underneath him yes. um, that really wants to push agriculture um, as an economic driver for growth in Nigeria. And yes. I think that's so important. I think, you know, one of the reasons that I think that this business can work now is that there's a confluence of all these things yes. that hasn't been the case in the past. So, and, and the Minister of Agriculture is a strong leader, so he's really trying to drive change. I've seen that in a lot of reports about him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with, with a strong ministry, I think with the development of new um, higher quality seeds that are now actually being able to be brought into the country and they're not genetically modified. I want to make sure okay. that everybody understands they're okay. actually um, what we call hybrid seeds. That means they've been hand pollinated over many generations and bred for certain characteristics, but that they're still, it's like, if you remember biology, Mendel and the peas, it's okay. like, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of crossbreeding within the same species for certain characteristics. Okay. So for higher color, for higher sugar content, for, you know, tougher skin for less water, things like that, that will make it um, more energy efficient to to create a paste out of tomatoes. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's the fact that those seeds are now available, the fact that the government is now, you know, really trying to be proactive about pushing agriculture, the fact that, you know, power situations are improving, the fact that, you know, there are repackagers that want to source locally. They don't want to buy their product from China. You know, they want to buy their product from Nigeria. They see the future of the market as, you know, becoming a local market. The fact that Dangote thinks that there's an opportunity here, you know, we think that those are all signs that now is the right time to get into this business. Yes. So what about issues about water irrigation for um, your farm? Because I don't think the north gets a lot of rain like it does in the south. Am I right? Yeah, so that's actually that's actually one of the reasons why tomatoes grow well in the north. Okay. Um, if you think about the tomato plant, it's actually a very very sensitive plant, um, and so once the once the plant starts to fruit, once the fruit starts to grow on the plant, um, any raindrops that come onto the fruit uh, can damage the plant. They can create mold. They can create you know other damage to the to the plants, and the fruits will actually not be as good. Okay. Uh, but what you do need is you need to have enough water, you know, available at the root of the plant. Um, and so what that means is that you find a lot of farmers who farm vegetables, farm them alongside riverbeds, um, or they farm them, you know, near lakes, um, near near areas where there is surface water. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of farming right now that uses well water in the north um, because it's expensive to get boreholes and, you know, things like that. So you... Um, you know, we we know that water is a big issue, and where we're where we where we are right now, the place that we're at right now, we're using as a proof of concept um, area. So we're farming with with a private landowner. We know that we have enough water um, for our nucleus farm to be able to farm on two hectares this year and fifty hectares next year. But we know that when we scale, we're probably going to want to scale to potentially a government facility that is actually an irrigation site. So Nigeria does actually have a fair amount of um, water, surface water systems in place, so dams, 
and other weirs and other sort of water collection facilities, um, even in the north and in the south, um, that that are able to provide agricultural areas with adequate supplies of water. Okay. Um, but the other thing that we're looking at, and I think this is really important, is switching from what's called flood irrigation to drip irrigation. Okay. So flood irrigation um, is what most farmers use today uh, when they're farming vegetables. You basically have a pump, you have a hose, um, you have a source of water, like a river, and you hook it up and you just flood your fields. You have like little furrows and you sort of send flood, you send your water down each of the furrows and you block it off once it gets full and you know, put the water into the next one until your whole field has flooded with water. Yeah. Now, that's not the most efficient way to use the water. Um, if you have a drip irrigation system, you can actually end up using something like less than a third of that amount of water. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you're able to direct the water directly to the root of the plant, you're actually able to grow the plants better and more efficiently, more efficiently. using less resources. So, you know, for us, um, sustainability is really important. And we're trying to explore ways that we can not only use drip irrigation on our own farm, but also help, you know, the the smallholder farmers that we work with get access to drip irrigation and that technology that will help them to be able to. Okay. That's interesting. And that's all going to be included in the plan for this um, pilot farm? So the pilot farm, yeah, we've got um, we've got drip systems that we're getting ready to install. So Shane actually just this past week has been um, clearing land for the two hectares where we're going to be growing our, our crops, and we're expecting to get our drip lines coming in around Thanksgiving time. Okay. Uh, so that when we start transplanting, so that's like early December, mid December, we'll actually have the drip irrigation already underground. In the Okay, so where are your equipment coming from? Are you sourcing them locally, from China, from the United States, from where? Good question. Um, some of our, most of our equipment we're sourcing locally. Okay. So um, the farmer that we're renting land from has tractors, and okay. we're renting his tractors and you know using his um, equipment for a lot of the the larger scale, heavier sort of lifting on the earth side. Um, when it comes to the greenhouse, so the greenhouse is important for us because. Tomatoes, the way you grow them in California and the way that sort of you grow them with best practices is that you you first grow seedlings in a greenhouse. And then once those seedlings are strong, um, you transplant them into the open field. The greenhouse we've gotten from a supplier in Lagos um, who, you know, it's a company that's like an Israeli company. Um, The Israelis are very, very... Uh, well-known in the ag space for doing a lot of greenhouse farming. So we've sort of sourced that technology, but it is available in in Nigeria. Um, And the same thing with the drip irrigation lines. We're getting, you know, stuff that is made, I think, gosh, it's called Netafim, the irrigation system that we're Mm -hmm. using. Um, I think it's an Israeli system as well, but we're sourcing it through a supplier that's like their licensed supplier in Nigeria. Okay. So... Uh, you know, it, there's there's becoming a lot more available in these markets um, as they grow, and you know, as as agriculture, I think, undergoes a renaissance in the country. Um, if you think back to the 70s and back to the 60s, before oil was discovered in Nigeria, agriculture was actually the biggest driver um, of the economy. The economy yeah. yeah, and I think that you know, people are starting to see a return and a shift in focus back to agriculture because it really it really can be 
um, a very good business to be in if yeah. you have the patience. Yeah, especially when oil prices are going down. Yes. And not everybody's going to be able to lift. I mean, from everywhere. So there's still a lot of untapped, unused land actually, uh, arable land in the country. So that's very good. Uh, so, okay, so you're working on all that. Shane is building the plant. Um, let's talk about some interesting experiences <laughs> you've had since you've been working on this project since April in Nigeria. Uh, do, you, do you have any examples? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, something interesting happens all the time. Okay. Um, yesterday, so I was in, we were in Kwara State, um, one of the states that we were, you know, looking at and evaluating to see whether it would be a good place for us to scale our business. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I still get phone calls from the king of Ilala, which is this one community in Kwara State that we were, you know, evaluating. He, mm-hmm. Even though we decided not to use his land, you know, Nigerians, as I said, are very, very friendly on the whole. And this king just, you know, he called my U.S. line. He was like, hey, Mira, I haven't heard from you in a while. Like, how are you doing? How's America? You know, when are you coming back to Nigeria? You got to come visit, you know, Ilala. Um, things like that, you know, where you're just like, wow, okay. You know, this guy just wants to chat, you yeah. know. <laughs> Or, you know, last week on the farm, we were dealing with, we had a, we had a visitor who had come out um, to, to see us from one of the NGOs in Abuja, and we're considering partnering with them um, to develop the smallholder piece of our, of our program, because, you know, that's, that's very crucial, and we want to learn from other programs that have been successful in Nigeria. Right. We're in the middle of a meeting with this guy, and, you know, Monday, our foreman, uh, comes into the office and he's like, I'm sorry, there's a problem with the wheelbarrow. We're like, what? The wheelbarrow? You know, so all three of us like traipse out to the farm and, you know, our, our staff of five, um, you know, we have five employees now. We have to make payroll. It's very yeah. exciting. They're, they're, mixing, um, they're mixing cement and sand and everything for concrete and the, the wheelbarrow broke. You know, so they're like, well, we don't know what to do now because the cement is over here, but like we have to put it over here. And so now we're all like problem solving of like, how do we fix the axle on the wheelbarrow? You know, us and like the, the NGO partner that's like here meeting with us, like we're like, sorry, uh, we need to leave the office for a second to deal with this operational situation that we have on our hands. And so, you know, there's, there's always something like that going on that, uh, that throws a wrench in your plans. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, on, on the other end of the spectrum, um, getting angel investment has been a lot harder than I thought it would be. Okay. Um, you know, we, well, farming is a, farming is not sexy. So, you know, for, for a lot of investors, um, there are a lot of like from, you know, using business school speak for a second, there are a lot higher like NPV projects in Nigeria that are, you know, proven methods of how to double your money in, you know, a year. And they're not like, not like any of them are illegal, but like, say you got a contract to put up a cell phone tower, Mm -hmm. you know, you get the contract, you put up the cell phone tower, you make double your money and it's been six months, you know. What we're trying to sell is something very, very different. You know, we're saying... capital, you need couple farming seasons yeah you know every time you learn something you have to you have to wait another year before you can apply that lesson yeah. because there's only one season in a year 
So, you know, we're talking about, well, we, we know that we need to achieve a yield of X um, over a period of days, Y number of days in order to prove that we'll be able to process, you know, profitably. Mm-hmm. It might take us three years to get to that yield, you know. And so finding people who believe in the vision and believe, you know, that you can, you know, you can actually execute again, like this comes back to the fact that I'm not a farmer, you know, we've hired people, um, onto our team who have that expertise, but we don't have that expertise. And so it's, it's a challenge, you know, and everybody always says, don't count on, don't count on money until you see it in your bank account. You know, we walked out of, um, we, well, we flew out of Nigeria in August feeling very confident that we would be able to raise the money that we needed, um, pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, fall because we've had a lot of successful, you know, discussions and conversations with potential investors who were very, very interested in the project. But then when it comes down to writing the check, uh, you know, you find stumbling blocks, you know, additional hoops that you have to jump through, additional documentation that you need to get, you know. Um, but again, you know, just like the business plan competition, every time you have a failure, you start, you try and think, okay, like, how can I learn from this, you know? If this guy had questions and I had the answers, then that means that my presentation wasn't clear because, you know, he had questions or he thought something was different than, you know, what I said it was. So how do I make that better for the next time? You know, or if somebody has a question about how are you going to mitigate this risk and you haven't thought about it, then you're like, okay, I need to take a week and I need to not just think about how to mitigate this risk, but I need to show that I've done it on the farm. You know, say there's a concern about water. Well, I need to dig a second well, you know, and say, hey, like we've actually manage that risk and put it to bed. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely not easy. Uh, I think you have to be an optimist and maybe a little bit foolish to be an entrepreneur because you have to really believe that, um, that you can make it work. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. So are you talking to any impact P investment firms like, um, Acumen fund, for example? So we are. Um, Acumen is a great fund. There's another fund in Nigeria called Sahel Capital Partners, which is actually run by um, two HBS grads. Um, And there are a few other companies, a few other groups, Root Capital, for example, um, that are very interested in the impact investing space. What we've found is a lot of these companies uh, or private equity firms or, you know, investment groups look for some kind of an operational track record. So, you know, while we think that it's very important for us to initiate these conversations now Uh and to, you know, keep people updated on what we're doing and how we're operating and why we're doing certain things the way we're doing them, uh, our understanding is that, you know, to a large extent, a lot of the money that's out there uh, is not going to be accessible for us until we've proven sort of that we can operate for at least one growing season. And so that sort of pushes us back into... Um, the world of angel investment, high net worth individuals who, you know, maybe have a passion for this or, you know, see some kind of an opportunity for us um, and for themselves and also into the world of grant writing. So, you know, we're certainly still looking at competitions, still looking at grants um, in addition to, you know, the few angels that we are, you know, working to wrestle up uh, back to my hustling skills to make sure that we're actually fully funded for this first operational season. And that's why the Kickstarter is so important too, because any kind of capital that we can get that's A, non-dilutive and B, you know, helps to uh, confirm, you know, that our model can work, um, we think is is really, really valuable. Mm. And and not just for the money, but also for the community of of support that that comes with it. So, you know, I've actually been 
tremendously surprised uh, as, as the person on the back end of the Kickstarter, I get an email every time somebody contributes and I'm blown away by all of the Nigerian names that I'm seeing that are coming up as supporters, you know, and, and crowdfunding is not something that's, uh, not something that's very common. I don't think in Nigeria. Yes. No, it's not. Uh, and so it's, it's really, it's really cool to see, you know, people, even if they're contributing $1, $5, whatever it is, the fact that they think this is a cool idea and mm-hmm. they're putting money where their mouth is, um, and that they want to be a part of this community of, you know, people that's trying to change, uh, the economics and, you know, poverty levels in the Northern part of the country, um, I think is fabulous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's made us, um, it's, you know, it gives you, it gives you the sort of motivation to keep going, you know, when you see people believe in you and that, you know, they, they really want to see you succeed. Yeah. Cause, um, okay, before we get to the crowdfunding aspect and your Kickstarter campaign, you mentioned non-dilutive investments so far. <laughs> Have you been diluted? Did you get any external money, or it's just um, basically the equity split is between you and Shane, and right. are there other people? So the so the, the the majority of the money that we've raised so far has been from our own sources. So mm-hmm. we, as I said, we got twenty five thousand dollars from the Harvard Business School competition, mm-hmm. and then Shane and I have both put in a small amount of um, you know, well, not small for us, but probably small for you know a large. In the grand scheme of things, you mean. Yeah, you know, we've we've put in each a certain amount of money um, into the into the I guess our bank account or whatever into the company, mm-hmm. um, and we've now raised um, additional additional money from uh, two angels. Okay. We have an open round right now, so we're still in the process of negotiating with a few other people to try and hopefully close out our investment round by the end of the year. Okay. Um, the the way that we've sort of structured the investment is through what's called convertible. A convertible note. Yeah. So, because we feel that it's, you know, and again, this is back to sort of business speak, but because we feel that it's unfair to try and put a valuation on our company before we've gone through a full operating season. Mm-hmm. I'm proven rather, the concept. We'd rather push that down the road until we, you know, are able to raise a Series A and able to raise money based on, you know, a bit more of a track record. And at that point, then any of our investors um, that have come in will be, you know their investment will convert into equity with some level of a discount um, at that valuation. Okay. So that's sort of how we're approaching it right now. Um, we have a little bit of external money, but it's mostly been our own money. It's mostly been what we call bootstrapping, right? Bootstrapping, that's, exactly. That's the chicken poops. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Because um, the reason I asked is because I, my prior interview, I interviewed a uh, Kala Masha. He's also an uh, agriculture investor in Nigeria and what I've noticed that's parallel between you guys and him is that you guys are applying um, newer techniques and a more sophisticated approach to agriculture that the man on the ground does not know or because people generally assume agriculture is you know you go you get a plot of land you farm with the cutlass and a hoe, whatever, in the sun. And here you are talking about term sheets, you know, convertible rounds, you know, talking about drip irrigation, sourcing seeds from people like Heinz and whatnot. To a lot of people, it wouldn't make sense to connect A to B, you know. But you guys are, like, actually just mixing everything all together and you're taking an industry that is largely offline, online, because now you have a Kickstarter campaign for an agriculture project in Nigeria. And 
I think my attention was called to it by one of the tweets from one of my friends, OO, one year he's a tech entrepreneur in Nigeria. So I saw it and then we connected on Twitter and then now we're speaking. So there's a lot of things happening and I guess this could only be done in this time of our lives where the world is so hyper-connected and there's still lots of industries that are still offline, especially in emerging markets where smart people that know how to combine the two worlds, and I'll say two worlds because it's the digital world and the analog world, I guess, to create business models. Even though it's still farming, but it's still a new spin on an old thing to, you know, start a company. So, um, do you think that it's necessary for an entrepreneur to have a well-rounded skills like you said you're not a farmer but you're working in agriculture you have business school experience you've worked in blackrock and other places and like you're using technology like kickstarter what do you think are the skills that are necessary for an entrepreneur in this day and age to be able to launch a venture similar to what you're doing and to be successful at it it's a good question Hmm. i think you know Entrepreneurship takes on many, many, many forms and many different faces. And not everybody is a Mark Zuckerberg and not everybody is, you know, a Bill Gates. Um, I think, you know, the biggest thing you have to have is conviction, conviction and passion. And, you know, you have to, you have to believe in your idea. I think that's really, really, really important. And you have to be willing and able to go to bed every night thinking about it, wake up the next morning thinking about it and um and have have that persistence um you know the persistence that backs up the passion yeah and you know by persistence i guess i mean a little bit of a hustle as well right like you've got to be you've got to be willing to to do whatever it takes to get that business up and off the ground you have to believe that you can get it up and off the ground um i think you know in some in some businesses and in some you know examples we see people who have like very clear understanding of a very small niche and that's how they find the opportunity mm-hmm. you know they say okay i found this specific opportunity because i've been working as an engineer in this area for xyz years and i see a way to do this thing better yeah. you know and in some in some areas you might just stumble across the idea and think okay you know like i did you know which i wasn't a farmer but i saw this obvious to me like you know this obvious thing and I started asking, well, why haven't other people done it? What can I do that's going to be different that will make me be able to do it where other people haven't been able to? Uh-huh. Um, and then you go from there. But a lot, I think, I, I think primarily it's about passion and it's about persistence. Um, those are those are the two biggest qualities I think that that you need to be able to succeed. Um, and and I think a risk tolerance. Risk tolerance. Okay. Yeah, I think you know if you're somebody who wants to live a very comfortable life and, you know, doesn't, isn't willing to take the risk and take, you know, take the plunge, I think it's going to be very hard to be successful because you have to live with a pretty huge amount of uncertainty, um, especially in the early days if you're trying to start something up. And so you have to be comfortable and know yourself that, you know, you're going to be able to do that and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be able to, to live with that. Like there's certainly times earlier this fall, like there was one Friday night, I very clearly remember I came home and, you know, there was just so much going on. We were, you know, Shane had just flown to Nigeria. He was out there, you know, on the farm 
I was here, I was trying to, you know, figure out some element of our model that, you know, wasn't working. And I was like, oh my God, we're not going to be profitable. Like I had just learned how much fertilizer actually costed or something. I don't know. And I just mm-hmm. came and I like listened to my heart race for like 30 minutes. I just sat in a chair. I was like, oh my God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know? And being able to sort of live with that feeling um, and then be like, but you know what? Like, that's okay. Like we're going to do this, uh, you know, and, and being able to get up out of that chair and like turn on my computer and be like, let's solve the problem. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge part of, of, uh, of what makes you, you know, what makes or breaks you. And this is the conclusion of part one of a two part series where I interviewed Mira Meta, the co-founder and CEO of Tomato Joss, a for-profit social enterprise based out of Kefi, Nigeria. If you liked what you've listened to so far, please tune in and listen to part two, which is going to be available shortly. Or you can also go to youtube.com and watch both videos. Yes, I recorded both of them as videos for the first time in the history of this podcast. So you can go and consume the video content on YouTube and I'm sure you're going to love it. Now, please don't forget to go to the Kickstarter page for Tomato Joss, that's T-O-M-A-T-O-J-O-S, and um, contribute to Mira's crowdfunding campaign. They're trying to raise $50,000 to build a tomato paste manufacturing facility based out of Kefi, Nigeria, like we discussed earlier. And your contribution will really, really help and go a long way to ensuring that they're able to purchase the right equipment, and also these two young grads can build a some decent living quarters. They're right now staying in a converted chicken coop on the farm in order to save money to and contribute and completely bootstrap the business. So so if we hit the 50,000 mark, that is awesome. They can purchase the equipment. But if we go beyond the 50,000 mark, these guys can have a little bit of extra cash available so that they can at least make some decent enough living quarters for them to stay while they're working on their project in the farm. So please go to kickstarter.com and search for Tomato Joss and contribute as little or as much as you want to. And don't forget to tune in to the final and concluding episode of this show where she brings it all together and teaches us how to launch and run a successful Kickstarter campaign. So until next time, guys, take care and stay bulletproof. Cheers. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.